0: Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation with Dr. John Barkley on his new book, Paul and the Gift. Scott, would you get us started today by introducing your friend and our guest? Yeah, I'm excited to have John
1: Barkley with us, and I have to admit I'm biased. John and I uh, were working on our PhDs at the same time in Cambridge. He was at Cambridge. I was at Nottingham. But we spent a year together studying at Tyndale House. And I knew him as a young man when he was an up-and-coming Pauline Hmm. scholar. And now he's become that. He's at Durham. And I, I consider John a master of analysis and analytics and nuance. And he's done this in so many occasions, but one of his early books was about Jews in the Mediterranean world, and it is an exceptional study. And he's turned to Paul now in this uh, magnificent book on grace in the Apostle Paul. And I I consider this was my number one book of the year, and it, it could be very well one of the best books of the last decade. And so, John, it's really great to have you with us today to answer some of our questions.
2: Thank you very much, Scott. I'm glad to be with you.
1: John, one of the early comments you make in your book that uh, I think is not only accurate and insightful, but it's surprising, you say that that there are very few who who have examined grace Uh, theologically and historically and socially in its context. Why do you think that grace has been so neglected in academic study?
2: I suspect it's because it's kind of taken for granted. It's like, well, everybody knows what that means, and uh, we don't really need to investigate it further. Um, I wonder if it's also that it's just become such a, um, a familiar theme within the Protestant tradition um with with certain kind of well-defined views about grace, that uh, people are kind of reluctant to open up that that topic again, um, in case it produces more more polemics, or in case it um, maybe by looking at it exegetically, you might even have uh, our own views on it challenged.
1: yeah, you know as i when I read your statement, I thought to myself, and I kind of looked at my bookshelf. I don't really have a book on my bookshelf that examines grace. So you not only uh, have opened up uh, a window onto a topic that has been largely ignored in scholarship, but you've done so with penetrating insight. And one of the great things I think about your book, uh, and one, I think one of your gifts, John, is your, your understanding of the Greek and Roman world. And so I, I the question I would ask you, another one is, how do you think the Greek and Roman contexts help us understand what grace meant, even when Paul used it? So you might break that down in your own way, but some, something along that line is a question I'd like to ask you.
2: Sure. Um, of course, the, the 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 words that Paul used for grace, particularly the Greek word charis, are just uh, regular everyday words in the Greek world for gift or favor. Or benefaction. There's nothing, there's nothing specifically Christian about them. There's nothing specifically theological about them as words. Um, and so one of the things I, I realized as I started working on this project was I need to understand what people mean by gifts in antiquity. I need yep. to understand how they think uh, gifts work. Um, so what I um, did was to do some work on the anthropology of gift and how, how gifts work in different cultures and then to zero in on... On the Greek or Roman world, one of the things I discovered, for instance, um, and this became very important for me, was that gifts are normally given, uh, and this is this uh, this applies to human gifts and to divine gifts. Gifts are, are normally given with some discriminating care, because you don't want to throw away a gift at an undeserving or unfitting recipient, because gifts are intended to create relationships; they're intended, actually, to create reciprocity. So I soon realized that the modern notion of the free gift in the sense of the gift given not expecting a return is a, is a very uh, strange notion um, in the ancient world. Gifts are normally given in order to create a relationship and some, some form of reciprocity, whether that be just gratitude or honor or a counter gift. Uh, and, the, and that for that reason, because they create relationships, they're also meant to be given carefully, lavishly, but discriminately to fitting or to to worthy recipients. So it's really, as I kind of explored that world, how gifts operate at the everyday level with among ordinary uh, neighbors and friends and at the big civic level as as major benefactors gave gifts and so on, I began to realize that some of the things I'd taken for granted about gifts uh, weren't actually true in the ancient world.
0: Wow. So, so would you say you were surprised a bit, John, by uh, you know what what you found in antiquity, or is that kind of what you were thinking that you would discover as you took a look at it?
2: No, I, I was I was definitely surprised. Um, I think I thought um, uh, that uh, you know gifts were, would frequently be given anonymously and 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 would be given with some hesitation about about any notion of uh, of return. Um, I began to realize, as I as I read the anthropology, that that, that, that most cultures actually operate with strong notions of reciprocity. So it, all of this, uh, you know, the more I read the ancient sources, the more I realized, yeah, I really do need to, um, I really need to think harder about what gifts are and how they operate, um, and to start bringing some of my own assumptions it, uh, into question.
1: You know, John, when uh, when you were working on your doctorate. And I was, and we were at Cambridge. I would yes. walk every day down to uh, the school where my daughter was in, I guess we would call it kindergarten. And I would meet with a, and I often would have a conversation with a, uh, a scholar named Richard Saller, who is uh-huh. a good Roman historian. Oh yes. And he was studying at that time reciprocal benevolence. Yes. And I remember thinking, well, that's not what the New Testament teaches. All right. All right, And so I, I thought, yeah, that's the Roman stuff. And I was working on Matthew. So I, I wasn't all that worried about what he was talking about. But uh, it sure seems like a small world when I can hear that conversation from those days. One of, uh, one of the things I like, John, I, and I don't know how much, uh, how much this little appendix of yours is going to uh, carry the day, but at the end of your book, you have a lexicon of gift in Greek and Hebrew, Latin and English. And you start out yes. with this definition that I think is just uh, is just genius for us. Gift, or grace, denotes the sphere of voluntary personal relations characterized by goodwill in the giving of benefit or favor and eliciting some form of reciprocal return that is both voluntary and necessary for the continuation of the relationship. So, what I see here is this very common thing that you've already brought up on reciprocity uh, that has become a major issue, in, of course, in theological debates between Lutherans, Protestants, et cetera, and Roman Catholics, yes. and that is, uh, what does uh, reciprocity mean, you think, in the Roman world? Uh, could you give an illustration and maybe tell us what your, let's say, the best book people could read from the Roman world, uh, uh, original text to help? Some of our people. Sure,
2: um, there are many kinds of reciprocal relationship, uh, and gift is only one of them. Um, if you if you think of it, I guess uh, trade is a reciprocal relationship. You pay for goods, and you and you and you get the goods. Um, there are many kinds of kind of quid pro quo. Uh, one of the things that uh, in the modern West, we've tended to say, well, gift is not a a reciprocal relationship. Gift is a one way relationship. Uh, And what I realized was that gift is another kind of reciprocal relationship. It's different from pay. It's different from uh, taxes, for instance, in that it it is voluntary and it's personal uh, and it's non-contractual. So you, you can't take somebody to court if, if they don't give you a return. So it has that personal and voluntary element to it, but it is still in the structure of, um, of reciprocal relationships. Uh, um, the best, I think the best um, text on this in the ancient world uh, is, by the, is by the Roman Stoic philosopher Seneca. Yes. Uh, uh, from the first century, uh, he wrote a big uh, 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 treatise or relatively big uh, book called de beneficies, or on benefits. Uh, a beneficium in Latin is, is, is what would be translated uh, 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 um, charis or grace or gift uh, in Greek. Uh, um, and um, he has a, a really interesting philosophical analysis of how gifts work, how they, how they misfire, how to give a good gift, um, how not to give a bad gift, and so on a very subtle philosophical analysis, but it gives lots of illustrations uh, uh, along the way uh, um, of what we're talking about.
1: Well, that's good. John, uh, I was very fortunate when I was writing my commentary on Colossians that I knew the people at Erdmans, and I wrote him and I asked if there was any way I could get an advance copy of mm-hmm. your uh, gift book uh, as I wrote my commentary. And I got it and I read it, uh, you know, line by line, and I continued to refer to pages 185 to 186, where you have a summary and conclusions of the six perfections of grace. Yes. I wonder if you would uh, explain the six perfections, why you use the word perfections, the six perfections of grace uh, and what grace would mean in, in each case.
2: Yes, certainly. Uh, As I worked on this theme of gift, I realized that there are many different dimensions to a gift relationship and many ways in which one could figure the gift as, as it were, perfect or, 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 or superb or a gift at its very giftedness, as it were, just as we might talk about a perfect storm, which has everything about a storm, as it were, all all, all together at one point. So we can talk about uh, a gift that is sort of quintessentially uh, in, its, in its ultimate or definitive form a gift. And we've tended to think of grace as, as the perfect gift, but we've tended to think of it as, as, uh, as perfected uh, 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 in one way. And I realized the more I thought about this that there were several different dimensions of gift. And I've, I've, I've tried to identify six Seven, uh, six different ways in which um, um, the notion of divine grace or, or divine gifts can be, as it were, brought to that um, end of the line, uh, definitive or extreme point. So, for instance, I talk about the superabundance of, of gift, that's to say, the, the sheer lavishness and extent and scope of the gift. That's one kind of uh, perfection. I talk about the singularity of grace in the sense that God is a giver and a God of grace only. And in some interpretations down through uh, Christian history, it's been considered that it would be inappropriate to talk of God as a judge or as somebody who condemns, as as a figure who who condemns people because God is a God of grace and grace alone. Um, That's what I call the singularity of grace. But then there's, uh, one could also talk of the priority of grace. That's to say that God gives before we give anything to him or before um, we um, respond to him. That's a very common perfection of gift, that God is always the first giver. Um, and then a partic- one that's particularly important for me I call incongruity. That's to say the mismatch between the gift and the worth of um, of uh, of the recipients. It's it's the way that a gift, which is normally given in the ancient world to people who are fitting recipients, can be perfected, however, as a gift given without regard to worth. And that's what I call the incongruity of grace, which is uh, a very important theme in this book. Uh, Then fifthly, one could talk about the efficacy of grace. That's to say the, uh, the gift that gives not only uh, um, something, but also gives the uh, um, the power or the a change of agency to bring about the effect of the gift. So it's an effective gift if it not only gives you something, but gives you the power to uh, achieve uh, what, what, uh, what it's designed for. And finally, and this is an important one in the modern world, the notion of the non-circularity of grace. That's to say that God gives and uh, 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 this is, uh, and and does not expect, or at least does not demand, a return. In other words, non-circularity is about the notion of a gift that escapes the cycle of reciprocity. Now, what I've done with these perfections is to try and chart out how different notions of grace down through Christian history um, ha- have been operative in different Christian thinkers. And this sort of taxonomy of these six different perfections is the kind of um, uh, analytical core of this book it, it, it sort of helped it helped me at least get clear in my mind what exactly I meant by grace because often people talk about well it's sheer grace or pure grace or free free gift and they mean sometimes a mixture of these different things and sometimes we can talk past each other misinterpret each other because we're not clear about what exactly we mean by that.
1: Well John you're a very gracious uh, when you are at times really Saying uh, some of these great New Testament scholars who talk about grace are quite confusing and uh, haven't examined the depth of what grace means. So I, I think your analytics here are so helpful. I just want to draw attention to two things. One would be what you mean by worth. I, I think this is a really important term for you. Yes. And, and w- what that means. And I think some people will misread it at times. But what do you mean by worth? Well,
2: what I mean is the um, is the uh, things that we value, the things that we rate highly um, about ourselves or about other people. Now, that that can be of many different kinds. It, it could be your worth, maybe to do with your ethnicity or your ancestry. Uh, that's very common in the ancient world. That the best people are considered to be those with noble ancestry. Um, it could be to do with your social status. It could be to do with, you know, what, as we would say, what class you're from or in the ancient world, whether you're free, for instance, or whether you're a slave. Um, your worth could be to do with your education, uh, your articulacy um, uh, in the ancient world with, with hierarchies of gender. Men are considered on the whole of more worth than um than women and older people considered more worth than younger <coughs> people and children and so on so there are many different as it were scales of worth um, yeah. it's what an anthropologist um, would uh, would call your your cultural capital it's what it's, it's what makes you important it's what, it's what gives you self esteem it's it's what uh, um, people consider uh, important about you and it, it so it's, it's a deliberately broad category because I think this is it's, it's helpful to put what Paul says about works and what we've said about uh, good works and so on in, in, in the in the theological tradition in this larger context, um, that God gives uh, uh, the gifts of grace um, not only without regard to the things that we do, but without, without regard to any element of our social or ethnic or gender capital.
1: So, so for you, John, something like uh, Galatians three twenty eight or even yeah. the uh, close parallel. In Colossians yes. 3.11 would be a great illustration of of worth being, uh, in a sense, deconstructed by the the grace of God.
2: Exactly. I think, um, you know, in, in antiquity, they're, 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 they're acutely conscious of the sort of social pecking order of how some people are of more of more are worth than others. Of 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 greater significance, and you know you you can get you can get, um, for instance, ancient philosophers who are extraordinarily blind to this say, well, of course, God would give God's best gifts to those to to those who are educated and male. And um, and of and of high birth and of good social standing, um, which is of course people like philosophers themselves. <laughs> um, so so I, 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 everybody likes to think that they are somewhere near you know the top of that ladder. Um, and I think that's the radicality of of Paul's notion of grace. Um, this notion, this this incongruity that God's that God's gift pays no regard uh, to. Uh, ethnic or social or other kinds of worth.
1: Yeah, okay, now, the other question I think that's I think that's just so important uh, in understanding Paul, and I really appreciate your bringing to our attention how that interfaces with the idea of gift in the Roman world. Mm-hmm. but i I also uh, would like this is a question I was asking myself over and over as I read your book, do you think Paul presents grace as circular? Or does he think it's radically non-circular?
2: Well, I think it is circular in this sense, in that uh, God's gifts are intended to create a relationship, a a relationship with us. And that relationship um, is that we should uh, recognize the gift, respond to the gift in faith, respond to the gift with thanksgiving, and respond to the gift uh, with what Paul calls obedience or the obedience of faith. You know, if, if you think about Romans 1, Paul's critique of humanity is that they fail to recognize the Creator God, fail to give God thanks or to worship God, to treat God as God. Um, and, and that's not because God is in some sort of needy situation that God desires or, 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 or needs uh, praise for God's own ego. It's rather that we only attain our own best potential when we are in that relationship of of gratitude to God. So in that sense, it's a bit like beginning of Romans 12. You know, I appeal to you that by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In other words, that, that there's the return to God. We return ourselves to God, newly created in Christ. So I think that although you know in the Protestant tradition we've been very anxious about this language of circularity or reciprocity, I think at a certain level it's it's, it's definitely there in Paul. The only thing I would add, though, and this is crucial, is that what we return back to God is, is ourselves, our very selves, who have been newly created by God. In other words, it's not that we have to generate something, as it were, from our own resources here uh, to return something to God, but God gives us, as it were, uh, a new self and a new capacity in order to be in that return relationship. Um, yeah, that's
0: that's really good. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I and I saw that I saw you working that idea really well, and so I just thought, well, some Arminians are going to hear some things here, and some Calvinists are going to hear some things here, yes. and some, some Catholics. And John, I I have to say, as I read your book, I was I was really impressed with your grasp of the great thinkers in the history of the church on grace, like Augustine and Aquinas and Luther and Calvin. This isn't just an examination of the Dead Sea Scrolls and a debate between Douglas Campbell and N.T. Wright and James, Jimmy Dunn and other New Testament specialists. You have gone after the history of this idea uh, in, the, in the church. And as you move uh, in that, as we move in that book in that direction, um, I wonder if you, in closing here, if you could uh, give us some ideas of how you think uh, your book, a pastor reading your book, teachers, mm-hmm. leaders reading your book, how it could help them in church ministry and even in their preaching.
2: Yes, thank you. I, I, I think um, what, it, what it helps uh, to do is... Uh, to zero in, as it were, to focus in on the fact that everything we uh, want to say about the gospel at, at its core is, is this notion that um, there is um, nothing uh, as well inherently in, in us that makes us uh, worthy of God. That, that allows us, as it were, to strip off, to, 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 uh, to relativize, to, to disperse uh, 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 all those notions of, of, of self-pride uh, that um, that can get in the way, and also all those notions of self-doubt and, and, uh, and um, uh, 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 crises in self-esteem and self-worth that many people have. Um, so, to, you know, to, uh, to look at, at, at the two sides of that, I mean, for me, uh, as, as an Anglican, the, the kind of the the height of the of the week, the moment when I most realize who I am is when I go forward to uh, um, uh, to receive communion in in the Eucharist, the epitome the expression of the gift of God, and I realize that Uh, everything you could say about me, I'm a university professor in Cambridge education, all of that, all of that counts for nothing, uh, means nothing uh, before God, because I'm absolutely on a level there with people of very, very different backgrounds from me, Hmm. very different levels of education and so on. That's a very liberating moment for me. That's when I am, as it were, most truly myself when I am receiving the gift of God in Christ. And I think the other, the flip side of that, we live in a a culture where people are desperately seeking to establish their worth, where social media and so on are making people very, very uh, conscious of of wanting to be liked, of wanting to put forward a good image, very anxious about whether they are making a good impression on others. And I think there's something very, very liberating about the fact that uh, 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 even if you don't like yourself, even if you feel you're a failure, even if you feel... Uh, 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 you know that, that you're not as popular as you want to be the crucial the one crucial thing about yourself is that is that God's love is given to you without condition and without regard to what uh, normal human standards of worth might make you feel
1: well John you just preached a little sermon wow, <laughs> <Amen>. Well, there you are. (laughs) Your old pastor, John Stott, would be mighty proud of what you just said right there. That was a beautiful beautiful exposition. And John, I want to say, uh, I think this is going to be uh, a seminal book that is going to generate conversations and dependence upon your work for years and years. And I just hope all our listeners buy this book, and no matter how much education they have, uh, take their time to read through it because it is delightful, it's careful, and uh, it is theologically so penetrating that uh, we're we're all deeply in your debt. And uh, I j- just want to say thanks for taking your evening time here to spend time on this uh, podcast with us.
2: Well thank you very much, thank you for your kind words. It's been a great pleasure to speak um, to speak with you.
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to purchase John's book, you can do so from a link we've included in the description. Also, if you'd like to contact John about his work, his info is there in that description bar as well. While you're there, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you can keep up on our conversation as we learn how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now.